Hello, my name is Philip Camella, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Collapse of Materialism, Philip Camella. And one of the things I like talking about is something known as a rise in consciousness or a rise in awareness. And with this concept in mind, and what I really mean by that, by the way, is sort of a maturity, sort of a growing up uh, of awareness of who we are. Uh, what's helpful with this concept is that as we get older, as we move through time, it's often helpful to look at old concepts, beliefs, esoteric viewpoints every five, ten years or so, and like a wine, see how the ideas age. Over time, I find that when we look at old ideas through these different lenses, we come to understand these ideas differently. Insights appear, and we may not have the same viewpoint we once had on some of these old ideas. What may at some point seem like a fanciful theory such as that God created the universe from nothing, as said in the book of Genesis, maybe that might have a ring of truth. At the same time, other ideas that are widely accepted, such as the universe arose through a big bang, may start being questionable. And it's just this concept of moving through time, of looking at things differently, of sleeping on it for days, if not years, that some of these ideas have a different form and maybe have a different credibility. This is also true of many ideas, I think, in the New Age movement, such as parapsychology or near-death experience. We know that anecdotes from credible sources and the findings of quantum theory, as long as, uh, together with the fine-tuning of the universe, has put some of these outliers' ideas in greater focus. It has brought them to the front burner, so to speak, as we see people like Edmund Alexander in his book Proof of Heaven, a credible neurologist writing about a near-death experience. All of a sudden, we may take these ideas differently. We may view them through a different lens. One set of old ideas that deserve a second look, if nothing else for historical reasons, are esoteric religions historical belief systems that took a different slant toward the big issues, the big issues being the Bible, the Old and New Testament, Jesus Christ, matter, spirit, dualism, the soul, reincarnation. These esoteric religions have long been forgotten, but taking another look at them through the lens of today's mindset may lead us to think differently about whether there is some truth in these systems. And every time I encounter one of these old religions, I have two questions. First of all, what made these people come up with these beliefs, and is there any truth to them? This brings us to today's show, which I've entitled The Lost Teachings of the Cathars, which is also the title of a new book by Andrew Philip Smith, who is joining us today from Ireland. He is the editor of the periodical The Gnostic and the author of several books on Gnosticism, Esotericism, and early Christianity, including the first ever dictionary on Gnosticism. He has written for New Dawn, 14 Times, and The Guardian. Andrew, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, Philip. Okay, well, I... Be here. Great. Well, thank you for joining us, and uh, your book here, which is brand new, published by Watkins, the title, The Lost Teachings of the Cathars, Their Beliefs and Practices, really opens up doors to really a forgotten belief system. And as we enter this topic, I think it might be helpful, first of all, to set the stage a little bit, which is how did you get interested 
in esoteric religions and Gnosticism? Yes. Um, well, you know, esotericism I mean, comes from a Greek root eso, which means inner. And so um, it's to do with the inner meaning of uh, religion. And uh, often that's accompanied by the notion of an inner circle of people who uh, have this understanding of religion too. And then um, Gnosticism is, uh, well, it's a very debated topic in academia at the moment, exactly what it means, if it means anything. But um, basically, my definition is it's stuff like what the ancient Gnostics used to do. So we have these uh, Gnostic groups in the early centuries AD, possibly the first, definitely the second, third, fourth century, who were Christian-related, but had very different ideas about the meaning of um, Jesus and the way that the world was set up, and particularly of what God meant and um, whether the kind of ultimate spiritual God was the same as the kind of God that you find in the Bible the, the God who uh, is very much uh, God of this world, who's involved with the fate of uh, the Israelites and all that kind of thing. So they actually proposed that these were two different figures. The God who is worshipped in this world um, is known as the Demiurge, from a tradition that goes back to the Greek philosopher Plato. And the true God is a God purely of spirit, who has nothing to do with matter, and the whole world of matter in which we live is a result of uh, a kind of cosmic accident or at least a fall. Um, so, you know, in your list of um, aspects of esotericism and catharism that you're finding interesting, you mentioned spirit and matter. And uh, Gnostics generally have a spirit-matter duality. So these are two quite different forces in the universe um, which have uh, you know different foundations, different causes, um, and which are somewhat opposed to each other. Yeah, you know, one of the things that comes across here that I think is important, um, and that is that we are left with uh, religious texts, which became the Bible and which became the, the Upanishads and which became Buddhism, and we could say the same thing about um, Islam and the Koran. And then we have a lot of people interpreting those books, and a lot of people interpreting those times, what, what actually was meant, what was said, what it really means. And I think what we, what we tend to forget is that what we really call religion today is really probably the most popular set of interpretations of those books and of those times but that does not necessarily mean that they're they're that they're correct and or that they are 100% true you know in reading your book it re- reminded me of socrates and his uh, emphasis on the difference between opinion and knowledge and this is this is something that maybe sounds deeply philosophical but what it really means to me is that we really live in a world of opinions, and we tend to follow the most authoritative opinions. And I, I sort of say that because it strikes me that there, there must be something in your study of Gnosticism and, and, and Catharism that suggests to you that there might be some truth here. Is, is, that, is that why you do this, or, or you just do it for intellectual um, curiosity? Um. Well, both. Um, I, I mean, I, I would, you know, people often ask me if I'm a Gnostic, and my, my reply is usually is that um, I don't call myself a Gnostic, but I don't mind other people calling me a Gnostic. <laughs> um, but I, but I am quite happy with being called an esotericist. Yeah. Um, so I'm interested in the, um, you know, the whole set of uh, traditions that qualify as uh, esotericism. And um, so, so I am interested in the experiential aspects and the spiritual aspects of it. Um, uh, but I, I, I kind of I, I got into 
Gnosticism in, in particular through explorations of uh, Christianity, um, because I, you know, I'm not. I was brought up something of a something of a Christian, um, and I'm not a massive fan of um, you know most modern forms of Christianity, um, which I don't have any trouble with. Uh, you know, people who sincerely. Uh, Christian themselves, um, but it still, I had this feeling that there was, you know, as you were saying, um, you know, the religion that we have now is a kind of majority mainstream thing that's uh, been, you know, even in the USA, you have the separation of uh, religion and state, of church and state. Right. But still, it's very um, part, much part of ma mainstream culture and involved with business and status and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, I, I, as with many people, I, um, you know, look at Christianity and I'm not very excited with what's going on today with it, but I have a feeling that there was more to it and that we've lost um, various aspects of it. Um, and so, so that was how I got into it. I was interested in the esoteric interpretation of the Gospels, um, particularly th sort of through the uh, lens of um, uh, 20th century spiritual teacher Gurdjieff, who, uh, with one of his pupils, the Russian writer Uspensky, um, they looked into their understanding of the inner meaning of the Gospels. So, so I was very taken by some of their interpretations, but I wanted to know more about it and I, I started looking at the um, sort of academic understanding the historical critical method of uh, understanding what was going on in early Christianity and in the Gospels and um, you know I invested quite a bit of time in uh, actually understanding how scholars were getting to their conclusions um, and then it kind of grew out from there really I was interested in the historical Jesus what Jesus might have been if you apply the kind of Techniques that you apply to any other historical figure, you know, because the Gospels are hardly um, uh, critical biographies. Right. Um, and then it sort of extended out from there. So I, the Gospel of Thomas, which was one of the um, texts found at Nag Hammadi in Egypt in 1945. Um, now, that really fascinated me because that was a list of uh, sayings of Jesus that sounded very different to many of the sayings in the New Testament. I mean, there's an overlap between them, and um, the Gospel of Thomas is quite disputed as to its age. Some people think it belongs to the second century, and it was kind of a Gnosticized version of Jesus' teaching. Uh, others think that it could have gone back to the first century, even to the middle of the first century, and could represent something, you know, really very old indeed in Christianity. Um, so the Gospel of Thomas is actually quite approachable. You can find uh, many translations of it online, and if you just plug it into Google, uh, you can start reading it. And it's kind of mysterious, um, but approachable. Um, but if you look at the uh, Nag Hammadi scriptures, or the Nag Hammadi library, um, which is also, you know, I think all of that is available online as well. It's really impenetrable at first glance, and you find yourself looking at all these strange terms from Greek that haven't been even translated into English properly, weird, barbarous names of strange entities that aren't even introduced well in the uh, scriptures that that are included. And um, so I became very interested in, um, you know, this kind of very different Gnostic Christianity and um, I found I had to invest a lot to work out what was going on, you know, both um, simply in terms of the text and then trying to understand, you know, what this meant for people in terms of their own experience and why uh, this was, um, you know, inspired people in a different way to the more literal understanding of the Gospels and of the message of Jesus that you find in the emerging Catholic Christianity of the early centuries. Yeah, and I think that there's there's a lot here. I mean, the the uh, title of the show is beyond is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, and what I mean by that is to go beyond the standard interpretations of religion and science or of spirituality 
and science. And we know that in the religious realm, we have, I mean, to me, uh, w- what we really have is we have sort of the, the quote-unquote church interpreting um, what uh, Jesus Christ said, uh, what happened during that era, and formed a religion out of it, a belief system out of it. And as you as you note, if you question those those beliefs, you can't be part of that religion. You can't be part of the mainstream. Uh, you are considered to be an outlier. And you know, throughout history, as we're as we'll get into with the Cathars, it, it will get you into varying levels of trouble uh, as you take issue with that established belief. But but. To, to really, if, if we're interested in finding the quote-unquote truth or finding insights, I never thought it was a good practice just to adopt what other, people and what other people's interpretations are, uh, and that would apply to science as well. Um, one of the things that, that strikes me here, and, you, and a lot of people probably don't know about it, and I didn't know about it until I read the book, you know, your book, The Last, I mean, I'm sorry, The Lost Teachings of the Cathars, is that we tend to remember the Inquisition, but we don't remember the people that were destroyed or their beliefs. And this is something that is is really interesting to me, is that, you know, and I think you put in your book that we, we remember the Cathars, what was done to them, but not, not, not for their beliefs. And uh, who knows whether there is any truth to their beliefs, but there was something going on here, and you mentioned it already about this distinction between spirit and matter, between good God, bad God. And I th- I'd like to ease into the Cathars a little bit by by talking about what you view as their as their distinguishable belief. What what distinguishes them from Christianity, first of all, for those who have never heard of the Cathars? Okay. Um, well, I, I, actually, I would point out that they thought they were Christians. Um, uh, yeah. They thought that they were the good Christians, which is the, the the good Christians or the good men and good women. That was what they called themselves yeah. and what the uh, local people called them yeah. as well. So they thought they were the good Christians, and the Catholic Church was the Church of Satan. Um, uh so how did they dif- how did their beliefs differ from you know the Catholic beliefs of the time uh, or modern you know the kind of general mainline Christian Christianity of our time? Um, well, it's in that role of Satan actually. You know, I mentioned with the ancient Gnostics that they believed that the world was created by this false or ignorant, uh, even evil demiurge and he formed the world out of matter and um, just to push the story on a little bit, uh, spirit gets trapped in matter uh, within human beings and so the whole point of this religion is to uh, be able to release the spirit from matter at death so it can return to the spiritual world. So um, you very much find this in the Cathars teaching and they had a myth uh, which is another common feature of Gnosticism, that uh, myth was used uh, over theology or philosophy uh, as a means of conveying truth or the situation that they believed that we're in. So the myth um, was of a cosmic fall, which is quite similar to sort of medieval Catholic beliefs at the time, that uh, Satan fell from heaven and... Um, <clears throat> took angels with him but in the cathar version uh satan fell from heaven but he discovered this uh, material world which kind of existed but hadn't really been formed together yet so satan takes the role of the demiurge of this lower god to fashion the world and he makes human beings and um he tries to make you know the story of adam and eve but uh, satan's taken the place of god in the the garden um, so Satan tries to get uh, Adam and Eve uh, to be created, but Adam can't stand up without having this um, spark of spirit within him. And because heaven, the heavenly world, according to the Cathars, is purely a spiritual world, there's no matter whatsoever up there, um, 
when these angels fell with Satan from heaven, you have all these spiritual beings trapped in the material world. And so according to the Cathar myth, we each have um, the spirit of an angel within us uh, that has to be liberated back to the spiritual realm eventually so that the heaven can be complete again. Um, so it gives a whole uh, context for human spiritual endeavor. And um, uh, it all ties in with the, um, the rituals that they had and the different classes of Cathars and all these things uh, tie in together and intertwine uh, with the myth. So this myth was something that um, they viewed the world through on a daily basis. And we have accounts from the Inquisition records of the different versions of the myth being told again and again, uh, even, you know, just to, to peasants and uh, uh, in evening gatherings and that sort of thing. Yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of parallels that we need to, that I'd like to focus on. Uh, this is Philip Camella. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. I'm speaking with Andrew Philip Smith, who's joining us from Ireland. He's the author of the brand new book, The Lost Teachings of the Cathars. And Andrew, you just got done talking about some of the um, distinguishing features between the Cathars and and Catholicism, which many of us uh, know know pretty well. Uh, there's a lot of former Catholic folks out there, um, but you mentioned one of their beliefs is this dichotomy between spirit and matter, with Satan being associated with matter, with the true God being associated with spirit. And you know, the word Satan, of course, conjures up all sorts of ideas images from modern culture but this notion that we need to separate ourselves from from the material world is also as you know sort of a fundamental to many eastern religions such as buddhism uh, where it's a similar kind of thing is occurring where we're supposed to uh, enter uh, samsara and uh, and exit from the wheel of rebirth and enter a spiritual realm and and so many other eastern religions or eastern beliefs go down that same path which is along the lines of the material world is an inferior kind of world and and true salvation comes from joining spirit with spirit the soul over brahman um do you do you see uh any influence at the eastern belief systems had on had on um, Catharism or how do you associate these two what some people would say widely separated um, areas of belief um, well there was a 20th century French novelist who was involved with the Cathar revival uh, Maurice Magre I think who um, he actually believed that the Cathars were Buddhists who'd been sort of transplanted somehow into the south of France. Um, now, I, I don't think there was any direct connection with Buddhism. Um, there may have been a connection with Manichaeism, which is another forgotten esoteric religion, um, and which may even be the historical link between the ancient Gnostics and uh, the medieval Cathars. Um, so I, I can talk a little about Manichaeism, if you like. Sure, uh, sure, sure. For those who don't know what it is, what, why don't you um, uh, summarize it a little bit here? Yeah. Um, well, in the third century, um, there was a man called Mani, who was a member of a kind of a Jewish or Christian Baptist sect, who uh, kind of rebelled against his own upbringing and had these experiences of his uh, heavenly twin, um, that uh, you know sound like um, very powerful spiritual experiences, and he he along with his father, who um, became an apostate like he did, founded his own religion. And this is in the kind of Middle East, in the areas of uh, Iraq, Iran, Syria, in the third century. So very quickly he got a following, and he became friends with the king in uh, Mesopotamia. Um, 
and it was a very uh, eclectic religion. So there's definitely Gnostic material that's made its way into Manny's religion. Um, but he also included Buddhism because he it, uh, he travelled out further east. Um, this is before the time of Islam, so there was no uh, Muslim influence on him. Uh, but uh, Zoroastrianism, Christianity, Judaism, and he acknowledged figures from all of these uh, sort of world traditions as being prophets before him. And he might have actually had an influence on Islam and on Muhammad, um, who also uh, you know acknowledged that there were prophets of the uh, religions before him. Um, so the, the key thing in Manichaeism is this uh, battle between light and dark. And um, uh, Mani had this uh, grand myth as well. Um, but from his point of view, there were two, light and dark were two opposing forces that had more or less always existed from the beginning. And it's only when you start to get... Um, territory encroached on between the two of them that you get this real battle between them and this mingling of light and darkness of matter and spirit that is the earth and um, so for Manichaeans and, and this religion you know spread to many different countries as far east as China um, but um, to Manichaeans the whole point of life was to liberate the light from the darkness and the darkness was identified with matter the light with spirit and um, so in that way, they had a very similar um, view to the uh, Cathars, but the Cathars were much more part of a Christian tradition. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, so you can see, um, you know, links with uh, sort of Eastern traditions there through the Manichaeans, and also, also I think um, certain um, religious systems or certain ideas about the world come with certain conclusions about the world you know so uh, if matter is um, evil or at least you know it's opposed to spirit um, then you're liberating yourself from matter and you need a certain discipline to uh, make your inner life independent from matter um, so uh, you know like physical disciplines and uh, celibacy is another common one that you see in you know, with Buddhist monks and also with the Cathars. So, the, I mean, the Cathars had a kind of inner circle called the perfect who were under very strict obligations uh, not to drink wine, not to eat meat and not to have sex. And the, the rest of the uh, Cathars were known as believers and they didn't have any real restrictions on themselves whatsoever. They could just live ordinary lives and they only... Uh, obligation that they had was to greet uh, Cathar Perfect each time they saw them, with the, which that was called the Melioramentum. Um, so, you know, and then the Cathars also have reincarnation or transmigration because they included the, the idea that the soul could pass to animals uh, as part of their belief, just as. Uh, occurs in uh, Buddhism for for instance and to some extent I think those are just natural you know outcomes of um, you know certain ideas like spirit being trapped in matter yeah um, yeah. Yeah, it, yeah one of the things it, that yeah go ahead go ahead uh, you, I mean you're asking me you, you know saying about whether these th their beliefs are true or whatever now, you know I don't think any of these things are literally true Um but I do think they represent a worldview that can have a particular effect on you. And through using that worldview and other practices, um, you have certain experiences. Now, I don't think those experiences are literally of being an angel trapped in matter or whatever. But I do think that they do, they probably do have some, you know, cosmic importance that we, in a more science driven age, we've described. I mean, science doesn't really make in much space, this kind of thing. But um, uh, I think it does boil down to worldviews and the effects that worldviews can have on people. Yeah, I, I want to, um, I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot here. And I think from, from the big picture, first of all, I don't necessarily think that you have to um, find a way for the Cathars to have read Buddhism or the, or, or the Vendanta or something. I mean, I, I, I am a fan of the hundredth monkey effect or some kind of, or put differently, um, that if there is a truth, 
that different people, different eras, different geographical regions will have different ways to interpret that truth. And one of the one of the, the truths here that is sort of a, a hypothesis in the New Age uh, and in also his uh, religion is that there's a oneness, a underlying spirit, divinity to the world, and that is not an original thought, but it really permeates the entire uh, realm of spirituality. So the fact that different people being part of this one spirit can look at the world in a similar way should not be should not be surprising. The other thing that strikes me is that, and this is something I've written about, is that we we face even to, even in today's world. But I think this was more pronounced um, a couple thousand years ago. It, which is that we 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 are uh, inner creatures. We have this inner life. We have these spiritual aspirations. Um, these dreams, these visions, and then we look out at a at a corrupt world, at a world that doesn't reflect our dreams, and I think that leads to religion in many ways. It's sort of an outpouring of spirit. Uh, it struck me that when you when you talked about uh, angels trapped in matter, that happens to be what I think too. I don't maybe put it in that way, but I do think in my opinion we are spirits trapped in 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 what we believe to be a material world. See where I, I part company is that I don't I'm I'm not a dualist. And and so so this is this to me is why it is important looking at these beliefs systems, these these quote unquote esoteric beliefs. Because they open doors to other ways of sort of evaluating, surveying how humans throughout time have dealt with the with the spiritual predicament. So I mean that that's that's what I think is really cool about this. I mean it's not as if somebody rolls out of bed in the in the twelfth century and says, "Let's see now, I either have to be uh, a Catholic or I have to be." Uh, you know, an agnostic, or I, or I have to be a peasant, or I have to be a scientist. I mean, there are other choices out there um, than just the off-the-shelf uh, belief systems. So, so I don't. So, uh, this is the way I look at this. I mean, this is to to me. I also think that the the uh, Gnostics and this and the and the Cathars are, are sort of are sort of um, sort of imprisoned by their dualism. You know, and, and I think that's something I'd like you to talk about because you, you do a nice job of sort of simplifying and summarizing dualism. And a lot of people hear this term, and as you point out in your book, it's got all sorts of different connotations. But the dualism that the Cathars have is a little unique. So why don't so what 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 is dualism for those who don't know what it is? How do you describe it, Andrew? Uh, well, dualism is basically um, having two principles in the universe or in the world. Um, so there are all different, uh, you know, types of dualism in different areas of human endeavor. endeavor. Um, I mean, in philosophy, when you think of dualism, you think of mind-body dualism, you know, or mind-matter dualism, uh, the idea that somehow our inner lives are separate from the material world. Right. Uh, and that kind of, you know, that was very much pressed into the service of uh, materialist science because, in a way, you don't have to take account of <laughs> the, right. the inner world when you're measuring things in the physical world then, you know. Um, but, uh, like, it's just anything that has, you know, where you can only count up to two in, a, in terms of the influences that you have is a kind of dualism. Um, so, I mean, there are other, you know, like when you're talking about uh, unity, that's kind of spiritual unity that you can feel uh, in certain states with the universe. Um, so, like in non-duality, modern non-duality or neo-advaita, Vedanta. Uh, duality is very much the state that we live in at the moment where we're all separate from each other, um, whereas non-duality is the experience of uh, unity with everything, with the world, with the whole universe. Um, whereas for the Cathars, uh, 
the dualism it's this it's this matter spirit dualism um and the idea that um it's not just a kind of division of experience into the outer and the inner there are actually forces behind matter and spirit and there are reasons for the way that the world is split into those two aspects um, and um, spirit is what you have to aim for uh, matters what is all around us in this corrupt world um, now I kind of um, you know when, like when people ask me if I'm a Gnostic I usually apply very stringent <laughs> conditions to myself <laughs> as to whether I, I'd qualify uh, so I say I'm not a Gnostic because I'm not really a dualist in that way um, and I see this more as a kind of you know like I mentioned the, the, it's a worldview, and I see this as a lens that you can look out through the world you can put on this dualist lens and you look at the world for a time through that lens and get some understandings through it but it's not the only way of looking at things and um, uh, but I have to say, you know, I mean, in, in a way, that kind of dualism doesn't account well for things like happy, ordinary happiness, uh, the beauty of nature, and, um, you know, all the sorts of things that come to mind when you hear that matter is evil. Um, but by all accounts, the Cathars, you know, even though they had this myth that could be interpreted as, as very gloomy and life-denying um, on the face of it, and, you know, the Cathar Perfect had all these restrictions as to not eating, you know, many kinds of food, not drinking alcohol, uh, not having sex at all once they'd taken the vow to become perfect. But by all, by all accounts, these were, um, you know, spiritually convincing people who were well-loved by the ordinary peasants of uh, the south of France who were protected from the Inquisition, you know, the peril of... Uh, you know these ordinary people being imprisoned or uh, uh, being executed and um, somehow what might be interpreted as a very gloomy outlook actually resulted in quite the opposite you know in people who really lived up to their um, you know spiritual possibilities yeah well you know we we can't forget as well that there is a history of corruption in the church. I mean, this is, we're still seeing it today, but it was, I mean, and you are an expert in this area, but it seems to me that the church has, was more corrupt uh, in the, in a couple thousand years ago and has just gotten less corrupt with time. And let's face it, I mean, and I'm going to be saying a couple of radical things in this show, and I've already said a couple of radical things probably, but what happens, and I was raised Catholic, what happens is that believers, they overlook the corruption, thinking that that it's, it, that for the greater good is to go to heaven, and therefore, even though they see corruption, even though they see the priests not, uh, not doing what Jesus said, uh, uh, religious leaders should do, uh, even though they see greed and lying, cheating, stealing, they still think, well, these are the people telling me uh, what I need to do to go to heaven, so I'm going to overlook all the corruption. And uh, it seems to me one of the things that comes across in your book is that the Cathars was a reaction against what they viewed as the corruption of the church, which I think is important, and, and, and maybe maybe that's why they call themselves the good Christians. I mean, is there something to this corruption uh, issue that inspired the Cathars? Yes, certainly. Um, I, I mean, it was the most corrupt period of the Catholic Church, um, and there was a kind of uh, reaction uh, within the Catholic Church to the Cathars. I mean, apart from... You know, the reaction of the Inquisition or the reaction of declaring a crusade against the, yeah. the south of France to, uh, you know, um, demolish the entire culture of the Languedoc. Um, th there were positive elements that um, kind of emerged in Catholicism uh, to some extent. I mean, uh, like Bernard of uh, Clairvaux, who was involved with the uh, Knights Templars when they were being founded, he introduced... Um, uh, 
the uh, importance, reintroduce the importance of Mary as the mother of Jesus, as a kind of d- divine feminine figure. So, you know, I mean, he had a very much a mixed legacy. He went around the Languedoc preaching against Cathars, and he was very influential with the Pope. So he was one of the people who drew attention to this, you know, problem for the Catholic Church in the Languedoc, which ended in, up in such a bloody way. Um, but he had some interesting aspects to him, some esoteric aspects as well. Uh, of course, Dominic, St. Dominic, was uh, not a particularly pleasant person as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. But he uh, he was very disciplined as well, and uh, the Dominicans, you know, were a kind of reaction against the Cathars there. Uh, but in general, it was uh, widespread corruption, you know, um, the church had all this temporal power, and it was the only show in town. Is that's worth remembering, you know, because this is a couple of centuries before Protestantism. Uh, the only other religious options were Judaism, which was only possible if you were a Jew, and you know, and if you were a Jew, you know, life would get pretty difficult at times. Uh, although I have to mention, add as well that the Languedoc itself was quite a liberal culture. Um, and um, Jews, Cathars and Catholics, you know, lived uh, cheek by jowl at times, quite happily together for, you know, a period of decades before things got nasty. And, of course, there was Islam. Islam was very much the other, and it was known through the Crusades. And, and of course, there was a very, you know, beautiful culture in the south of Spain where uh, Muslims, Jews and Christians, again... Uh, lived together peacefully until uh, the expulsion of the Muslims and uh, claiming Spain again as a Christian country, which you know was a little later. Uh, but really, it was the only show in town. Um, and there's actually one of the interesting things about Catharism is the with the structure of it. Um, uh, like I said, you have a, a perfect is the. Uh, the full Cathar, who has gone through this ritual called the Consolamentum, uh, which involved the Gospel of John being held over the head of the believer, the new convert, and uh, the Holy Spirit descending into the person. So this was presumably accompanied by spiritual experience, you know, I'm pretty sure. Um, But then a perfect could initiate another perfect, and... um, you know, they had these uh, strictures on them to, uh, you know, not have sex, not drink, not eat meat, uh, and other ethical obligations. Um, so if if any perfect didn't keep his or her vows, then anybody who'd been initiated by that perfect also found that their consolamentum was now invalid, and they had to get reconsoled by another perfect. So it was like this chain of responsibility from perfect to perfect, And each perfect would have a group of believers around him or her, because there were female perfects, and they were quite uh, advanced in their uh, acceptance of women in Catharism. So so it's a very um, non-hierarchical structure, really, although they did have area bishops. Um, And also, it wasn't kind of dogmatic. They didn't have a central scripture that you had to adhere to apart from the Gospel of John and maybe some of the other New Testament Gospels. So there was a lot of room for improvisation and for your own understanding of what was going on. And you also see this in the ancient Gnostics. Uh, Every single version of the Gnostic myth and these texts from Nakhamadi, go back to the second, third, fourth centuries, each one has a different version of the myth. It's like they're trying to work something out, um, hopefully from their own experience, but also from the kind of implications of, uh, you know, to have these having these different entities affecting the world and the, you know, trying to account for the fall and what it means that, sp- that spirit is original and that kind of thing. So they were... They weren't a static uh, organization at all. You know, they were always coming up with new ways of retelling the myth and new implications. Well, there, there is a clear uh, message here that I think is important 
to convey, which is that the Cathars thought they were carrying on the true word, word of God or the true word of Jesus Christ, that they believed that reality was spiritual uh, and that they, they were in tune with the way things really were, right? I mean, that's sort of, that's, that's what this is about. And to me, it's an extreme form of spirituality. And by extreme, I mean, is that they really, they really uh, depersonalize or they really uh, sharpen the dichotomy between spirit and matter. I mean, they go as far as, I mean, you know, they say that Satan created the material world. It is an other. And there is something here that may be common in belief systems like this, which is, which is a, a, um, a inclination to adopt reincarnation, transmigration, whenever you're in a, whenever you have this kind of belief system, because you sort of have to give hope to people on how how is spirit ever going to to win out? Uh, we see all around us, and I'm sure the Cathars did that spirit was not winning out. That that there was still a material world that was dominating them. So it, to me, it leads to some kind of well, if we don't get it right this time, we'll get it right in the next life and the next life, and so on and so forth. So I think that my I think that Catharism is is an extremist dualism. And I, I, because I have the same opinion of Buddhism, by the way, I think that anybody that, that denigrates the material world is sort of missing the boat. Um, uh, at the same time, I'm a big believer in spirit. So I think those two, I think that's really the challenge of our times. And it's always been the challenge is sort of reconciling the spirit, the inner with the outer, you know, as you say, uh, modern materialistic science tends to ignore the inner because it's a lot easier just measuring things. Um, but on the other hand, as we know from things like neuroscience, uh, explaining where the mind came from is one of the biggest unanswered questions of our time. Um, this is Philip Camella. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. I'm speaking with Andrew Philip Smith, the author of the new book, The, La the Lost Teachings of the Cathars, their beliefs and practices. And we, we've covered a lot of ground here, but there is something that is extremely important to make sure we, we, we talk about, Andrew, which is that the poor Cathars were the, were the targets of one of the most vicious persecutions in history. <laughs> and, you know, as I said at the top, uh, the top of the show, uh, many people have heard about the Inquisition, but they may not realize that the Cathars were one of the targets of the Inquisition. And so what? So I have two questions for you here. What is it about the Cathars specifically that drew the ear, ire of mainstream religion? And number two, what does this tell us about our ability to accept alternative religious viewpoints? So specifically, I mean, maybe the point's obvious here, but what what caused this crusade to be launched? Yes, that's, I mean, that's a very interesting question. Um, well, I mean, historically, the historical cause um, actually went down to uh, the assassination of the Pope's uh, kind of envoy, in uh, Languedoc. So um, I actually make this distinction early on in the book between what P.D. Uspensky, who was an esoteric writer um, and philosopher, if you like, um, called the his history of crime. You know, the history that we get taught in the history books, which is about, uh, you know, largely about wars and territory and stuff like that, uh, he called the history of crime. And, you know, I'm interested in the history of esotericism, which is running below the surface during that. Um, so what caused the church to pounce on the Cathars like that? Um, I think it was the, uh, you know, um, you know, bo both of us can criticize the Cathars for the uh, extreme separation of spirit and matter. But um, they were really confirmed in their worldview with what happened in the Languedoc and the... Uh, you know, 13th, 14th centuries there. 
Um, so the prelude to the Inquisition actually was the Albigensian Crusade, um, and the Inquisition was kind of a mopping up operation really in the wake of the Crusade. So you know we'd had a few Crusades going out to the Middle East to the Holy Land, um, trying to uh, establish Jerusalem Jerusalem as a Christian kingdom, and so they had this whole apparatus of Crusade and um you know traveling warriors and these entire you know bands of crusaders which were like traveling cities with everything from every kind of artisan and craftsman every kind of warrior and even uh, you know beggars you know masses of beggars uh trailing at the end of you know these uh, uh armies that went on for several miles so the difference with the albigensian crusade is that um these warriors came from the north of France down into the south of France into a Christian kingdom and laid siege to uh, Christian cities, Christian citadels, Christian fortresses. Uh, so what caused that? It's very, I think it's very difficult to, um, to answer in any kind of spiritual way. Uh, like I said, there are certain historical you know, episodes that led up to it. Um, and I think the extent to, the, to which the Catholic Church was involved with uh, uh, temporal matters, uh, you know, the, the political influence with um, the various emerging nation states of Europe at the time, you know, that was a big factor. Um, well, 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 they so, didn't. Well, well, they didn't. They didn't believe in you know the in, in the Eucharist, the whole thing about the body and blood of Christ. I mean that was that which I think is which is really interesting. I've never seen that before. Where uh, they just don't. I mean they they ask a common sense uh, question, which is you know hey uh, this is not really this bread is not really the body of Christ and the wine's really not really his blood, and so doing this doesn't really do us any good. I mean that's sort of what I mean. A lot of people have said the same thing to themselves, but that was one. But that I would think that. Uh, thousand years ago that was a very dangerous position to take that that the eucharist was 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 uh, erroneous yes they did and that's an outcome of the spirit matter dichotomy as mm -hmm. well um you know because if bread and wine are made of matter what on earth can they have to do with uh, christ you know um but that was um and, and you know, and of course, that's at the centre of uh, the Catholic Mass, the, uh, the communion, the Eucharist. Um, and they did, you know, they joked that uh, you know, if uh, if that little disc of uh, flatbread was the body of Christ, surely Christ's body must have been bigger than Mount Bougarache in the south of France. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but that wasn't only um, it wasn't only the Cathars who believed that. That was you know, the peasants weren't keen on the church. As it was being presented to them, you know, having the local priest lording it over them, and uh, you know, off, you know, and these the, the priests of the time often didn't keep to their vows, so you know, they were, you know, having sex with the, the local girls and all that kind of stuff. Um, but the, also, peasants made uh, jokes about the Eucharist. Uh, you know, they would pull out a turnip and. Um, Say you know this is the body of Christ, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know which is not to I mean so you know which is blasphemous if you're a right Catholic you know, and it's not to say you know, you know of course the and any literal interpretation of the Eucharist you know didn't carry through into Protestantism either, uh, you know like the Anglican Church has the Eucharist but it, there's not this um, literal transubstantiation you know, but then I don't I, you know I don't think modern Catholics really believe that very literally either and um, more kind of esoteric Catholics would say that the, the kind of transubstantiation that occurs during the Eucharist is within oneself right you know, uh, right right it's all right it's right it's a metaphor and um, it's it's a, it's symbolic and you know and we've mostly most people have gotten beyond that but but it's I thought it was it was curious that you know how direct the Cathars were about questioning the Eucharist, uh, and you know, it to me that that would be something to get you in trouble. I mean, the, but we're talking about burning 
thousands of people at the stake. And, and this is this is something that mo- that many people overlook or, or forget about is that uh, throughout history, um, it's one thing to be shunned, excommunicated, but it's another thing to be burned at the stake for thinking differently. I mean, we're talking serious repercussions. And it, it, it's always uh, intrigued me, Andrew, on on why why religions persecute each other. I mean, the same thing happened to the Mormons in the in the 19th century, and obviously it happened to the Jews, and it's happened to virtually every religion where those who think differently believe that they are somehow. It's happening today. Who you know they think they're justified in murdering, um, destroying people who think differently and let me just to because i think this is this is a really uh, important point here because the cathars were one of the uh, targets of, of, of or the targets of one of the most significant persecutions ever but i always i like to know what you think about this i have two thoughts on why religions persecute each other thought one is because they are the other religions are are insulting the the dominant religion's hero figures, or number two, the the dominating religion believes that the other religion might be right, or there might be some truth to it, and they want to wipe them out. So those that's those those are my those are my two uh, thoughts. But I'm just wondering if you've given any thought to this bigger principle, big bigger concept, and why why do religions persecute each other? What what is what is the driver here? Um, yeah, well, uh, and I think, you know, with your first point, which is basically the blasphemy, uh, one religion blaspheming another, um, you know, I think that there's the wrong kind of investment in what's basically a symbol or a a myth or an image, you know, it's like, uh, you know, now this is... uh, quite strong stuff now I might go, go into. But, for example, um, I, I, we have a blasphemy law here in Ireland um, that's a constitutional provision. You know, the Irish constitution says that uh, there will be freedom of speech in the Irish state, and then the next sentence is there will be a blasphemy law. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, that's I wrote a little article about that. I became quite interested in it because... Um, you know, as a writer, I'm very invested in freedom of speech. And um, I've o- often felt that blasphemy is kind of necessary in a way to so to help you to not take certain aspects of religion too seriously. And it's a problem with monotheism as well. There's nothing to laugh at in monotheistic religion. I mean, if you have, you know, like the, the pantheon of the Greek gods, then you can laugh at Hephaestus, being cuckolded by Aphrodite and catching her out in a web of gold strands that he's made and all that kind of stuff. But um, you know, there's no, not there's no comic relief in the story of Jesus or of Mohammed. <laughs> really. yeah. And it's a problem with uh, monotheism. Uh, uh, you have to, you know, especially when it occurs on a large scale, uh, uh, blasphemy. Uh, you know, it means that uh, somehow the whole religion, the whole culture, uh, and the whole set of beliefs is represented in certain images and understandings. You know, um, which um, uh, unassailable. You know, um, uh, I, I, uh, I, I was going to make a specific point, but it, it is quite strong stuff, so I'll, I'll leave that illustration, um, especially as, as since time is going on. The, the other point, when you're saying that um, uh, that uh, religions might believe that the other religion has it right or they're more correct, I think that kind of boils down to cognitive dissonance, you know, this idea in psychology, um, which is basically that if you have a strongly held belief... And then you start to see that what's happening isn't isn't really reflected by that belief. So, for example, you might believe that um, priests are particularly holy and sanctified and pure. But then if you see that a priest is abusing a child or just is very venal and, uh, you know, 
making the most of church funds for uh, the sake of personal wealth, all that kind of stuff. Uh, you have this image of what your religion is meant to be like, and what you're seeing isn't what it's like. And what you know, what people have found, what psychologists have found when they've done tests on this kind of thing, is it's not that what happens often is not that people decide, okay, my religion is wrong. Instead, they start to strengthen the belief and the image that they have of the religion and ignore the evidence that they're seeing before them. Uh, so I think that that comes, that's part of a factor, you know. If your religion is corrupt and you see people who are actually, although they're saying something very different and they're criticizing your, your religion, but they're obviously living in a very disciplined and admirable way, uh, I think that cognitive dissonance kicks in. And rather than acknowledging you know, the good parts of their religion, you go at it. You try to get rid of uh, this thorn in your side, which is reminding you of what you think you are, but you're not. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, there's that there's that um, saying that everybody has to believe in something. And over time, I've sort of come to the conclusion that these fundamental beliefs, and, and by that I would mean the religious beliefs and the scientific beliefs, tend to be core to our being. They define who we are. And many people, when you go outside those core beliefs, it's as if uh, it's shaking their very being. And, and cognitive, cognitive uh, dissonance seems to be a nice psychological term that maybe intellectualizes the issue. Um, but there is also, I think, an emotional part to this. Uh, it's very hard to change people's minds about fundamental beliefs. Uh, it, it, takes, it takes time and it takes experience uh, and if you're a scientist, it would take a contrary uh, experiment, um, which is really what uh, I think separates science and religion, although in the scientific realm, uh, we've had plenty of discussions on this show where scientists have the same issue. Uh, the sci scientists uh, tend to ignore data that that uh, refutes or, or conflicts with the this, this standard worldview. And I think that... Um, Again, what this show is about is about breaking down those barriers. And at the end of the day, I always say that you may wind up with the same belief that you held tightly to, but at least you opened your mind to other possibilities. And I think that this is something that we could all learn from looking at um, these historic esoteric belief systems. It really, to me, it sort of enriches, enriches our uh, view and our appreciation of spirituality. So, um, believe it or not, we have quickly come to the end of the show, and, and um, there's a lot that we didn't talk about, but I hope that in this discussion, um, we have seen that the Cathars really represent an amazing uh, part of history, and, and not only their, the substance of their beliefs, but what happened to them. Uh, when they ran afoul of the mainstream religious teachings, yes, they were essentially wiped out. Andrew, has anybody left? Is there any? Is there any residue of the Cathars out there? Um, well, I look into this in the book. Um, uh, you know whether any any of them might have survived. Uh, no, I think they were pretty thoroughly uh, put down. And I mean, I think into. The, the 14th century, you find some kind of lone figure in Germany who's uh, yeah. <laughs> seems a bit Cathar-like, and and I'm sure, you know, the the Languedoc um, has very much its own regional identity in France, and it wasn't even part of France before the uh, Albert Johnson Crusade. It was claimed by the the King of France and the Northern Kingdom to as part of the expansion of France. Um, so I, I think there would have been some family traditions passed down for a while, but we're set, you know we're talking about several centuries later now, and that there have been different kinds of revivalist traditions, um, many of which don't have much to do with uh, what the Cathars uh, really did and believed, you know, and I cover yeah. those in the book, uh, and I find those very interesting too because. Um, they're kind of uh, eccentric, romantic esotericists taking over, and uh, Otto Rahn is kind of fairly well-known figure, this young romantic German 
who kind of linked the Cathars with the Holy Grail and ended up being co-opted by the SS, having to join the SS, and he committed suicide. Mm. Um, um, so I don't think there's any uninterrupted tradition. Um, there are some modern neo-Cathar groups um, which I haven't really had any involvement with um, and probably have varying degrees of integrity. Um, but, of course, if you believe the Cathars, um, the ways in which they've survived is they've been reincarnated. You know, the ones who didn't die as Cathar perfect uh, are being reincarnated even today uh, in, in modern people. And uh, that's a whole fascinating story in itself, uh, mm -hmm. modern people who believe that they're reincarnated Cathars and the kind of experiences that they've had and how historically accurate or not those uh, stories might be. Well, there's no doubt that the Cathars have inspired a number of books, uh, uh, music, and films uh, we didn't get into it a little bit, but uh, but uh, I mean the Dan Brown books are are not are not in the same genre. But I'm, well, I, I'm sorry, they are in the same genre. But there is there seems to be this fascination out there in the public over uh, esoteric beliefs, um, and I don't know sometimes whether it's just for sort of the curiosity or whether there's a part of us. That in the back of our minds, thinking, you know, maybe, maybe there's a, there's some truth in this, and maybe the world is actually bigger, broader, richer than the mainstream belief systems tell us it is. And uh, with that, I'd like to, we need to shut this, we need to um, bring this to an end. Um, Andrew, I understand you, your website is being rebuilt. Uh, what, what uh, stage is it in right now? Uh, at the moment, it's in the stage when you click on it and nothing comes up. Whatsoever. <laughs> that sounds uh, today, familiar. You know, I, I think by the time uh, this, this interview is available, it should be up again. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. And the website's going to be called. It's called what now? It's andrewphillipsmith.com. Okay. All is one word. Two L's in Philip. Great. Great. Okay. Well, once again, um, uh, for those who want to get a really different perspective on on esoteric religions and really the story of the Cathars, not only what happened to them but what they believed in, pick up a copy of uh, Andrew's new book, The Lost Teachings of the Cathars. It's published by Watkins Press. It is a very good read. It's very well done. Uh, this is Philip Camella. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Andrew, thank you, and we'll see you next week. You've been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, hosted by Philip Camella. To find out more about Philip and his book, The Collapse of Materialism, visit thecollapseofmaterialism.com.